Welcome to the Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has forced us to rethink how many of our foundational institutions of society are going to function, and schools are no exception. On this episode of the Report Card, I asked two former superintendents to come on and talk about the considerations current superintendents are wrestling and the steps policymakers might take to better support them during this tumultuous pandemic. Today, joining me are Josh Starr and Duncan Klusman. Josh Starr served as the superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland for four years, and before that, in Stamford, Connecticut. He's a former special education teacher and currently is the CEO of PDK International. And Duncan Klusman served for over a decade as the superintendent of Spring Branch Independent School District in Texas. Before that, he spent time as a school principal, assistant principal, and classroom teacher. Currently, he's a clinical assistant professor at the University of Houston's College of Education. Josh, Duncan, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having uh, me on. It's great to see you. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, Duncan, Josh, you guys, overall, you got 25 years or close to it as superintendents. You ever seen anything like this? No. Uh, I, I have not, and I am, uh, you know, just following my superintendent colleagues on Twitter. I've been texting with various folks that I, I work with, and they are um, doing everything they can to not only take care of themselves um, and their families and their kids and their parents, whatever else, but also take care of the communities and provide good information to people out there as quickly as they can. Um, but it is a huge challenge. The only thing that I can recall even close to this, I was not superintendent during 9-11, but I was working in a district in New Jersey, and we were greatly impacted by it. There was a level of just sort of crisis and just confronting the unknown, but it, it passed after a little bit, right? But leading during a time like this is no easy job. No, and Nate, I've never faced anything like this. I, in my 11 years, I did have to deal with hurricanes, and my greatest disruption was Ike, where we had to close for 10 days, but nothing like this with the uncertainty, uh, just the duration, uh, how to shift whole systems to different models of providing education. Uh, just nothing, you know, this is so unprecedented in modern times, and I will say my heart goes out to everyone that's in all of our educators that's dealing with it, but I am confident that our educators in this country will rise to the occasion and will do great things and help the students uh, really make it through the very difficult time. Yeah, you said it. Uncertainty is the thing, right? You have a hurricane, even God forbid you have a terrorist attack. It happens and you know when it's over, more or less. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we don't even know whether we're at the end of the beginning or um, just at the front end of this thing. And, and we're already in with 45 states are closed and it's hard to know when things will come back online. How much uncertainty do you expect most superintendents have now? Or are they working with a lot more information than, you know, Joe Public's got? Well, I, I imagine they have more certainty than others. I mean, typically what happens in these situations is you're in constant communication with other various agencies, whether in your own local jurisdiction, you know, the health department, police department, mayor's office, whatever county exec, whatever it may be. And then you're working with the state department. And then there are, you know, your listservs that go around amongst the superintendents. But 
you know, the question is when will school be, uh, will school be closed for the rest of the year? You know, you have all those kinds of things. Um, I think the College Board just announced they're putting AP tests online, and I know uh, DeVos just announced that they are, um, you know, states can, can waive all standardized tests. So that provides a degree of certainty, but it's constantly moving. And, you know, they, they don't teach you logistics in superintendent school, right? They're taught, <laughs> they teach us to be leaders of teaching and learning and things like that. And they don't teach you logistics. You learn on the job. Um, and this is a logistics issue in many ways and a communication issue. Most school districts don't have the kind of communication arm uh, that something like Montgomery County does, or, you know, they're a lot smaller. And the listservs are populated with people who are posting misinformation. So there's a communications and a logistics issue um, that you have to deal with along with, with the uncertainty. Um, I'm assuming by next week, and I don't know, Duncan, what, what you think, but I think by, by next week, particularly the next week, We'll know a lot more, decisions will have been made, and, and things will tend to get a little more routine, if you can even use that word in, in this kind of time, but it's my, sort of my assumption. Yeah, I would agree, Josh. I think, you know, in any crisis situation uh, involving government, there has to be a decision-making point. Is it a local decision? Is it handled at the local level, at the state level, or the federal level, at the national level? I think that's still trying, kind of working its way through the process of education right now. I know in Texas, our governor's initial approach was allowed to happen at the local level. We have over a thousand very independent school districts. I think he saw that that was going to be a struggle, and so he uh, just recently made it a statewide decision as far as schools. By the way, I think that's very helpful to superintendents uh, when you're in a crisis at this level. It needs to raise to the state level, at least, in the decision of closure. And then with the U.S. Department today from, you know, deciding where is the national decision making in education, public education, which, again, is not a federal role. It's a state role. But where do they play into that? And because there are so many federal requirements today, I think the testing decision really has uh, helped out. I, I have been told by my colleagues that, that some of the, the biggest struggle right now is around clarity. Uh, involving special education students, and and uh, how to how to adjust this whole delivery system uh, and create some certainty around what you know how to, the flexibility that needs to occur for the local decisions to be made, uh, and where uh, the federal government needs to maintain certain statutes in place. And so I, I think you know when, now that the testing has been defined, um, I think it will move into different areas of specialization like special education. And I do think there will be more certainty. You know, one thing I would say, I think we've got to define at some point, you know, what, what is the outcome we're after with the decisions that we're making as a country? Um, my sense is uh, we're trying to flatten the curve so that our curve never peaks above the capacity of our healthcare system. And I think, I think one thing that would help everyone, schools and, and the public in general, is we're making a lot of quick steps, which are critical, and I'm glad they're being made. I think we need to clearly define the outcome we're trying to achieve by making those steps. And I think that would only not only create clarity among the public, but also among our schools. Yeah, so you brought up a topic, and let's just jump in there. You know, whether it's uh, equity concerns for special education students, and, and there you have federal requirements and legal requirements that you provide students with special education, equal access to the education that you're going to provide, 
may not have been considered in the context of within a week's time, we're going to move everything outside of our school buildings. What are the concerns that you got to raise? Because you, at the same time, you have a bunch of kids with special needs, and those needs are going to be incredibly difficult to meet in this remote learning project that we're all participating in. How is it that superintendents have to weigh these things and how heavily do those regulatory authorities that are in force in normal times, how heavily are they weighing right now? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, And what I'm hearing from superintendents in implementing all the changes that need to occur to keep education moving, what I'm hearing from them is they're really concerned about equity, whether that's equity of access between students who are in poverty and those who are not, or whether it's access for rural systems versus urban and mid-urban type systems, and then clearly around special education. Because as we all know, special education students, um, one of our three kids uh, had that designation and received those services. They have very specialized individual education plans that legally the districts need to follow. I would say, you know, a large majority, if not you know, most, do not have virtual learning defined in the plan. And so as you shift to virtual education, um, how do you meet the needs of students who have very specific IEPs on how education services are supposed to be provided to them? And so I do think you know, this is one of those very tricky times where flexibility is critical to give the local leaders maximum flexibility to meet the need but with the understanding that you do have to meet the needs of all students. Um, But I do hear from my colleagues in the field that equity across the board is one of their greatest concerns in making this shift. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing the same thing. Um, Certainly equity around food, distribution, things like that, but there's a whole bunch of of other issues with that. I, I do think the issue around special education is an interesting test for us. Um, and I'll, 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 I mean, this may be sort of an unpopular thing to say, but I think there's sort of a reasonableness test or a common sense test. I'm, I'm already hearing these rumors from people, you know, I see them, if, if people in the neighborhood, like on a walk or something like that, or you see a text saying, well, we heard this school system completely shut down all learning because special ed kids aren't getting, um, uh, uh, you know, not able to accommodate. And how can they possibly do that, right? And I think superintendents, on one hand, I mean, look, they're checking with the lawyers, they're checking with the state. This is where the state is so incredibly important and the feds to provide guidance. But unfortunately, in my experience, oftentimes what happens is the fringes will dominate the discourse and the most parents of special needs kids are very reasonable. They just want services for their kids. They will completely understand if services for their child lags a week behind services for other kids. They get, right? As long as they get good, good explanations, good communications, they know who to talk to, et cetera. But then there are some people in the advocacy community, unfortunately, who make money off of hysteria. And again, I, you know, and there's some great advocates out there, but there are people in there who's in, who, who it is in their interest is to pull out the letter of the law and say, no, you can't do anything unless you do it for everybody. And that is true and it is necessary to have those kinds of guardrails under normal times. But there, most parents, I think, will be like, you know what, I get it. As long as my kid, you know, you have, you're going to be doing something for them at some point quickly, I understand that, that this isn't all perfect and I'll work with you as long as, again, the superintendent and the school system are communicating. So I would hope 
that the fringes don't dominate these, some of these conversations and decisions um, because that could be at the expense uh, of a whole bunch of other kids. But that's the kind of thing that superintendents have to deal with. What is the state saying? What are my lawyers saying? What does the law say? What, what will my community tolerate? What are, the, what are they saying on Facebook and the listservs? What is the media trying to make a big deal out of this? And can I be seen as a credible leader who can help our entire community through all, all of this uh, uh, work? That's, uh, I think Josh makes a great point in so many of those areas. Uh, this is where it really helps in crisis to have clarity established by those at a state leadership and a national leadership level. So, Josh, you brought up, this is often dominated by the, the periphery and the edges. Let's talk about the meat of the plate. Seems like we have a lot of districts turning pretty quickly on a dime from standard procedures to <laughs> online provisions, sort of uh, education through packets, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, what have you seen and how do you think we're doing? So I, I will tell you, I don't know what we know right now. I, I know what I see in the Twitterverse. Um, I know what I see people saying they're doing. Um, but, uh, and I, I know a lot of people are, are doing great things. I, I'm not suggesting they're not. But we don't really know the extent to which districts have really set, set true online learning or if they're just simply pushing out packets of, of materials. And I'm not judging one or the other, but I think there's a lot of activity going on right now. And we're, we, I don't know that anybody has a good handle on the substance of what folks are doing. I, I do think, I don't know if you ever read that book about Roosevelt's first hundred days and his thing was, you just got to do stuff, right? It doesn't matter. Do something. If it doesn't work, do something. And I think there's, there's a lot of legitimacy to that kind of leadership that, that if you spend too much time planning, even if that plan is great, you're going to lose people by not doing something. So I do think that there's this rush to get something moving, get everybody involved, have them do things. But we don't really know the substance of it. We don't know the effectiveness of it. Um, you know, and, and like anything in public education, there's going to be a huge range based on capacity. Uh, you know, I was talking, we're, we're concerned about our Educators Rising Conference and the competitions, and we, will, we may have to do them virtually for our kids. We have people in, in rural areas, they do not have broadband. They don't have access. So now they're not going to be able to compete. Like, so those are, those are real issues. So there's a huge range. And I think that there, we don't really know the substance of, of what folks are doing out there as they're just trying to figure this all out in real time. You know, I am pretty amazed at, at the, how quickly uh, systems have moved. Again, I think there's some concern around equity, equity of access, and particularly in rural areas and, and for students who are from low-income homes. But I'm pretty amazed at, at, the, at the shift and, and the speed of that shift. And I'm amazed because, you know, essentially I feel like we really, for the last 10 plus years, have been behind in the whole aspect of virtual education as systems. They've been, we've slowly kind of tinkered with it and worked with it, some aspects of distance learning, but we really haven't shifted. And we've often done it around uh, individuals, people's willingness to do it, you know, who's interested in doing it versus everyone. So, so I'm, pretty, I'm pretty interested in watching this shift, and I think I'm pretty amazed at the, the speed that it has occurred. I, I think there's kind of three things I think that have to be in place. You have to have the system, the software, something to actually, you know, be able to, to make this shift. You have to have the participation of staff and teachers. And remember, in, in the past, really for the last 10 plus years, we've let it be around participation. You know, if you want to use Blackboard, you can use it. If you want to use some platform, you can use it. Um, and then you have to have access. 
um, and, and broad access for the students to do it. So I, I'm really pretty amazed and, and very, very pleased with, with the shift that's occurring. And I do think, you know, all generations seem to deal with a defining moment. And maybe for education, this very difficult time is going to be a defining moment to really move us thinking of, of so many of the issues we've talked about in the past, whether it's a, an agrarian calendar or whether it's virtual education versus face-to-face. I think that I think one of the possible outcomes of a very difficult situation is maybe accelerating us to the areas that we've struggled to go in in education last year. And if I can just add one one piece, I think I will say that the one thing we have seen is around food mobilization. That that just seems like you know the most immediate issue that we know kids have. Systems have done just an outstanding job with that. Um, from from what I've seen. Give folks a sense of that. So when you're a Sioux, you have a lot of things to care about. You're an instructional leader and so forth, but you're also a big food distribution network in in your community. What does it take to move from, you know, a cafeteria-based system to a a to-go meal provider? Well, you know, a lot of systems started doing summer food distribution a number of years ago. I know we started in Montgomery County, I'm trying to think, maybe it was like 2012, give or take. And so I do think some of the, some of, of what food nutrition service managers understand logistics really well, and it's re- simply a matter of ramping it up. You have to get agreements from community centers, and you have to find places to, to do the distribution. It's just an acceleration of what many, many school systems have been doing during the summer for many years. And again, it's, it's where you can put it, um, how you make sure you keep everything clean and all that kind of stuff, make sure people have gloves. This is where, you know, protective gear is so important. And if there are enough masks, whatever it may be, you know, but there are ways of doing it. And, and, I, and just from what I've seen nationally, it seems like that's where folks have ramped up immediately. And, and part of that, and, and Duncan, I'm curious if you agree, like, there's this cry from a lot of parents about academics, 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 but I think a lot of superintendents know you got to take care of kids first and families. You know, it's Maslow, right? And you got to, you just got to do that first. And then the, the other stuff, you know, we'll get to it as soon as we possibly can. But you got to take care of our, of our vulnerable kids and families first. And, and they seem to be stepping up really well around that. Yeah, what I'm seeing is, is that I think for the superintendents, the, the feeding side may be one of the most certain sides because I think they also feel like if they ramp this up and, and and again, in our hurricane situations, this is something we had to do um, not only for our students, but for our community. So we started serving first responders. We started serving community. Just, I, I remember opening up our gym and saying, let's just start making hot dogs. We had hot dogs and popcorn that was there ready for games. It's like, let's just start making hot dogs. And you know, the question at the time is, uh, will we get reimbursed? And so let's just take care of people. We'll worry about that later. I think through those experiences, the folks in Texas, particularly on the coastline, know it's one of the things you can ramp up fairly quickly with certainty uh, to be able to really get going and know that you're going to be reimbursed for those costs when at the end of the day. So that raises a really good question. How much money is going out the door for new programs that wasn't planned on? It's got to be substantial, right? Yeah, I actually sit on a board um, and uh, we approved a $2 million uh, window yesterday, of, you know, budget amendment to adjust spending for the organization. So, uh, you know, luckily most districts will have their fund balances, but this is one where you immediately will have to go into 
areas of your reserves without the certainty that those will be reimbursed by state or local officials. And so clearly there's going to be some costs associated very quickly up front to be able to make this shift to a more virtual environment. Yeah, and I would, so, so I think that there's a lot of unknowns. What will the feds do around title dollars, right? Um, will they be able to be rolled over? Just like Duncan said, reserves, you know, if the state has a requirement for that reserve, can you dip into it? I think the bigger issue, frankly, is going to be this year, how are states going to adjust their budgets based on the complete economic collapse we're going to experience? And then there's going to be the planning. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, we're going to go through another three to five year down period in school systems because of lack of tax revenues coming in. And that's what I think folks are now starting to realize, holy crap, we're, we're going to have a much smaller footprint. And I'm assuming states and the feds are going to take care of relaxing some of the rules around federal dollars and whatever it may be. But I don't know what states are going to do around the state aid that they give to school districts. And, and then how will districts who may have thought they were getting X amount for the fiscal year 21, all of a sudden they're getting X minus a whole bunch amount and they've got to completely readjust. Then it becomes a whole HR issue. There's a there's just a domino effect that's going to happen that is going to consume superintendents and central office leaders, unions as well, for, for a number of months dealing with all this. And I think in the case of, of education right now, what's really important is that the, the federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, really move out of the way of local of states by, by giving maximum flexibility allowing those state leaders, the governors and the commissioners and state superintendents to really be able to address this, this at the state level and, and then able to uh, provide the guidance they need to the local level. Clarity, clarity and roles and responsibilities in a case like this is critical. Yeah. And I think, I think by giving it directly to the governors and the superintendents and the commissioners and the federal government really giving that flexibility will create a lot more clarity for the local schools. You know, and if you think about it, you know, the systems are set up to bring kids to school and to maintain school size. So a large percent of your employees in the system, their roles are not there to set up virtual education. So you think about your bus drivers, uh, you know, luckily in this case, cafeteria workers obviously will, will, will be brought in to do the work that they do. And maybe bus drivers will start helping out with that. And you have custodians. Obviously, you'll, you'll maintain your buildings, but you don't need to maintain them the same way you do when you have 1,000 or 2,000, 3,000 kids. In. So you have, a, you have a system that's completely set up. Remember, 80% of the cost in school systems is in personnel um, that are set up for a whole, a large, you know, in, in Spring Branch, we had out of, out of our, our 35,000 kids, we had about 4,500 employees, um, a little under half are non-teaching roles. They're there to support the system. Custodians, bus drivers, maintenance, just the whole array that occurs in running a system. Um, and so there will be some shifting roles that occur, I think, too, in this very short term um, until you figure out what's going on. Duncan, I'm curious, as you're a superintendent and you have a bunch of employees wondering, am I going to have a job? Am I going to get paid during this time when the school is going to shut down? What kind of options do you have to give them certainty, or is it out of your hands? Yeah, this is critical because in most communities, the school systems are one of the largest employers, if not the largest employer. Um, I don't know how to address in all states, but I know in Texas, board of trustees can take action to do a resolution that basically says uh, this is not a gift of public funds and that they are going to compensate employees, including hourly employees, 
during a crisis like this. So I think most boards in Texas, if they have not already taken that action, will be taking that action. I know in Texas, the governor has, has um, loosened the open meetings laws so that, so that virtual meetings, we've had, we've had on the books you can do virtual meetings, but they were pretty constrained. And so he's taken some of those constraints to make that easier. And I think, I think you'll see in Texas that, that boards will be taking that action and creating that certainty among their employees, uh, again, in many communities where the education institution is the largest employer. When I think about it from an economic point of view, superintendent wants to get everybody, everything back to normal as soon as possible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, because of the, one, the unknowns, and two, the complete lack of leadership at the federal level, and, and really, because we, you know, we don't have the testing, whatever else that we're going to need to really make a decision. Like, someone's going to have to make a decision, say, all clear, go back in. And you can't do that without tests, right? And then the other piece is, there's a, I think there's going to be a psychological you know, kind of aspect to this. Because we're sort of towards the end of the year anyway, you can say, you know what, it might be safer to just stay closed for the, you know, for the rest of the year. And it's, it's going to have an, it has an enormous impact on, on every, every aspect of a community's life, without a doubt. Okay, Josh, let's say that that's how it's going to play out. And on, on the one hand, I think that, that governors should wait and see as long as possible before they shut down schools for the rest of the year. But let's just assume that a lot of schools are going to go through the end of the year. Man, that seems like a lot of headaches. You got a bunch of kids who missed their last quarter of school. A lot of them need to graduate, and there's complications there. You know, even putting the testing aside, if this goes to next fall, what's your number one priority as superintendent to get the kids who need to leave this school year signed off and on to their next episode? And what's your number one priority as kids are returning to class in the fall? I think the number one priority uh, is needs to be based around resetting complete expectations. So what it looks like to end a year this year will be unlike what it's like to end a school year any other year in history. And I think you just have to have that understanding and that expectation and, and put it in perspective. If I have a student who has been in a system for 13, 14 years, and in March, middle of March, with two and a half months to go before they graduate, I think we can feel confident that, that they are able to graduate and to receive their diploma with whatever type of system is put in for the next two and a half months as we finish out. Because, because really that graduation is an example of a totality, and so I think keeping that perspective is, is really important. I think, I think it really does have to be a concern about, you know, if, if our goal is nationally to flatten this curve out, to not, to not meet, reach the capacity of our healthcare system. And, and, and again, I think that's a question. Is that the, the goal? Then what does it look like moving into the fall? Um, this is a virus. And, and so what does it look like um, where viruses spread and necessarily don't go away? And, and understanding that I keep hearing the, the quickest we'll have a vaccine is 18 months. We do know if we have the right tools, a vaccine, whatever needs to be in place, we can ramp up really quickly to take care of that. We just have to have those things in place. I remember being in elementary school in the 60s and they lined us all up. I don't even know what immunization it was. It may have been smallpox at the time. 
They lined us all up in the cafeteria with folks standing there with some gun they had where they basically gave, you just walked up and they put it, shot it in your arm and gave you your shot and you went back to class. So I think with the right tools, we can be prepared for the fall. But with what I'm hearing, you know, five months may not be the type of runway that we need. Yeah, and I would, I would just add, so I do think, I agree with Doug completely about the academic piece, particularly with graduating seniors. I, I myself have a senior, you know, who's graduating in a couple of months. I have a junior starting to think about, you know, college, like junior year is such a big deal. And then I have, a, I have a sixth grader. I think we're going to be able to figure out the academic piece. I do think that there's going to be this question of what does return look like and what kind of safety precautions you put into play. It's interesting. We, we actually have surveyed our educators rising kids. You know, these are high school kids who want to be teachers. And one of the things they said in the survey, I really need to get good with technology for online learning. I need to make sure I have a lot of good plans, but I need to really make sure I have health and wellness taken care of and that we have cleaning supplies and all that. So I think superintendents are going to have to make sure that that they have convinced their communities that there are protocols in place to deal with the unknown, assuming there will be testing, but no virus at that point. And I don't mean academic testing, I mean uh, coronavirus testing. Um, it's really about ensuring that there are procedures in place so that school leaders and teachers can react quickly, um, make sure kids are safe, et cetera. That, that's going to be what is of absolute critical importance when we do read We've got districts across the nation, probably all states are going to shut down before too long. I think we're at 45 now. And this is a major disruption to learning. Well, the end of the school year is a real fixed point most of the time. But if there was an ever a case where it might be reasonable to extend school years in a lot of districts, this might be it. How likely do you think that is? Uh, if we have a, a more difficult time educating kids at, in a remote manner, do we run it into mid-July? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, just like we have seen a, a reshaping of delivery instruction, I think, I think everything needs to be on the table on how this would be handled. I think, you know, one thing that needs to be on the table is, is opposed to extending the year, do you call it a year? And then do you change the way you educate kids around the calendar where you shift out of an agrarian calendar to more of a year-round calendar? been such a disruption. Is it an opportunity in that disruption to actually completely shift the calendar? Things so many of us have talked about for so many years is the misalignment of a system to the world today. And so, you know, I think one consideration has to be, uh, you know, do you just say we're going to call it a year and then we're going to start with a new approach, uh, not only with the ability to do a much greater, you know, degree of virtual learning, but also, do you look at the way you calendar the year for schools? I think of the sort of practicalities of it and the money. Um, Two-thirds of teachers have a second job. Many of that's in the summer. Um, they rely on that for, for their income. Um, now, who knows whether they're going to be able to work this summer anyway. But if you, you got to pay people if they're going to work beyond the contractual year. So where is that money going to come from? There's also a logistics issue. I mean, we see it all the time with schools that don't have air conditioning. There's just a lot of, of resource issues that go along with extending the school year. I mean, and, and someone has to pay for it. So if the state were to say, yes, we will cover the cost of all that, I mean, salaries, keeping the schools open, et cetera, then I think that's a really legitimate concept. Um, of course, summer camps would be losing out, and that's a whole nother issue in communities because there are people who were employed there that, you know, they, they need that money during the summer. So 
it, it, unless unless the resources are there, I don't I don't see how it's gonna how it's gonna happen. Duncan, Josh, this this podcast is huge. We've got millions and millions of listeners, so you're really speaking to the people now. And when you have this opportunity. How can the public support superintendents who are trying to do their best to get these school systems back up and running? I mean, what do superintendents want from the public right now? Well, I, I would say this. First, kids are always learning, regardless of what we're teaching them. Right now, they are learning how adults respond to a crisis and the unknown. And what adults need to understand is that they need to be holding their kids close, right? And, and helping them through the emotional adjustments that they need to make around all this and just deal, right, with, with that aspect of it. While we also start, you know, when we go back to fractions and world history and all that, I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is don't believe Facebook, don't believe the listservs. If you didn't see it on the district website or from an official email, don't assume it's true, right? And that is one of the most frustrating parts of being a superintendent in general in the age of social media. You know, I, I love my Twitter, but don't believe everything you see on Twitter, right? If it's not officially from the superintendent, then assume that it's just rumor. You know, I would say too, um, just, just really have the perspective that superintendents really have their child's best interest in mind as they move forward and make these decisions yeah. in a very difficult time uh, with all the uncertainty. And, and the other piece is, I do think it's a time, again, when we talk about, you know, a, a generational definition, a, a, something that defines a generation. I think it's actually an opportunity to strengthen families. As I, as I, you know, you go out to take the dog for a walk or or ride a bike. You know, it's it's amazing to see families who are just out and about right now that I did not see, have not seen really in the last 10, 15, 20 plus years. And so I think it is an opportunity to strengthen families and just for the families to know that the superintendents and the teachers and everyone in education who's trying to figure this out right now in a very uncertain time have their students' best interest in mind the decisions that they're making. And I hear that in every voice I talk to. Yeah, bottom line, Nat, is just please give superintendents the benefit of the doubt. Just, just please assume positive suppositions and give them the benefit of the doubt. And exactly like Duncan said, they want the best for everybody and they're doing everything they can in these uncertain times. So please just give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and if that counts now, I'm sure it's going to count in four more weeks when a bunch of parents are real tired of this break. Well, Duncan, Josh, appreciate you coming on the report card and sharing your perspective with us. Hopefully this won't last too much longer. Thanks so much for having us, Nat. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Josh Starr and Duncan Klusman. Thanks also to our producers. They make these podcasts possible. That includes Matt Rice, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. Remember to subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review so that other people can find the show. As always, give us comments, questions, or topic suggestions at ed.podcast.ai.org. Signing off for this show, I'm Matt Mountain.